This episode is brought to you by IVP. Too often, people affected by disabilities are made to feel unwelcome in the church. Pastor Lamar Hardwick is himself on the autism spectrum, and in his book, Disability and the Church, he addresses the church's responsibility to the disabled community. He also affirms God's image in all people and offers practical steps to build truly inclusive faith communities. As a listener of this podcast, you can receive this book for 25% off when you use the promo code IVPOD25, that's I-V-P-O-D-2-5, at ivpress.com. This is IVP. Covenant precedes command, precedes law. Covenant is the basis and the renewal of the people comes through return to covenantal faithfulness. That's been a rich seem mm-hmm. in Christian thinking about the basis of political community. And so when people think they're being Christian because they're trying to have a kind of Christianized version of family, faith and flag to defend the integrity of this political community, I'm like, red flag, red flag. <laughs> <laughs> you're not reading scripture, clearly, yeah. Yeah. and you've totally forgotten the Christian tradition and you're being profoundly unfaithful because you're making an idol of that which should never be the ground of any kind of community, let alone a political community. Welcome back to The Disruptors, a podcast from InterVarsity Press. I'm your host, Caitlin Chess. Today, I'm talking to theologian Luke Brotherton. Dr. Brotherton is my advisor in my doctoral program, but I first came across his work as a seminary student, who was desperate to find anyone doing the kind of theology I thought my church and seminary needed. We talk about the theological meaning of politics, Christian nationalism, and spiritual preparation for an election season. I'm excited for y'all to learn from him too. Luke Brotherton is Robert E. Cushman Distinguished Professor of Moral and Political Theology at Duke University, as well as a visiting professor at St. Melitus College in London. His newest book is A Primer in Christian Ethics, Christ and the Struggle to Live Well, published by Cambridge University Press. His other books include Christ and the Common Life, Political Theology and the Case for Democracy, which we talk about in this episode, as well as Resurrecting Democracy, Christianity and Contemporary Politics, and Hospitality as Holiness. Alongside his scholarly work, he has worked with a variety of faith-based NGOs and churches around the world, and is actively involved in forms of grassroots democratic politics in both the U.S. and the U.K., He also hosts and writes the Listen, Organize, Act podcast, which focuses on the relationship between churches and on-the-ground democratic politics. I'm excited for y'all to hear this conversation today. Dr. Brotherton, thank you so much for doing this. Um, You were just saying that I have probably heard a lot of the things you were going to say before, (laughs) but other people have not. So I'm so excited for other people to get to hear the things that I have heard you say before. And one of those things that I've heard you say a couple of times in different contexts is a little bit about your background, how you became interested in political theology, but also kind of what personal importance this has to you. So would you start out um, by just telling that story to our listeners, especially kind of how you came to care about and understand the role of the the church in particular in public life? Yeah, no, certainly. And, and Kelly, it's a joy to, to be with you. I feel like this is like kind of conversations we have in my office and they're taken <laughs> onto a stage yes. in a curious way. So yeah, so I mean, I grew up, so I'm a, as you can tell from my accent, uh, kind of London, London born and bred, not, not American, and grew up, uh, actually, I'm, I'm sitting in London at the moment and grew up just a kind of mile and a half or so from where, where I'm sitting at the moment. And uh, there was a notorious slum landlord called Peter Rackman. Peter Rackman uh, would kind of take people's deposit checks they would go in the house uh, and then he'd send his heavies around a week or two later, turn them out, put his prostitutes in. And this was a whole racket he was doing. He actually has a whole act of parliament named after him called the Rackman Act because um, he was such a kind of, it was on such a scale. But there were many others doing this. And this was the area my parents moved into in 61, 1961. And they were kind of appalled by this. Some of, these, some of the folk who were suffering this indignity were in their church and they kind of realized what was happening around them. And so their sense was, 
you know, you, you've got to help. Like you just, you can't let people be treated by this way. This is against basic Christian commitments. You've got to treat people who, who might be strangers around you as guests to be, as neighbors to be loved, not as either commodities to be exploited or as kind of just instruments of some social engineering program. So they literally went around friends, uh, some of whom were wealthy, ran bake sales, raised a whole bunch of money, bought houses, and uh, the kind of strap line was providing good quality housing for low-income families. And that was kind of all around the area where I lived and, and that was in our kind of front room for many years was the office before it moved into its own offices. And my mom was a rent officer and my dad, till he was on the kind of board of it till this dying day. And that sense that you, the kind of, that, that kind of began with, they put that together with some friends they were in church with and the role of the church in the community and as a source of kind of both connection to the community and you're, you're working out of your Christian commitment through kind of reweaving the civic fabric. That was very much a kind of just the world I grew up in. So my parents, as I said, kind of strong evangelicals who got very involved in the charismatic movement and very culturally conservative. My father's a kind of lifelong member of the conservative party and kind of, you know, uh, all the things that aligned with that is very Eurosceptical and this kind of stuff. But they formed a very strong relationship with someone called Father David Randall, who was an Anglo-Catholic priest, uh, openly gay in the 70s is with his partner Paul, um, and was one of the kind of leading introducers of uh, Latin American liberation theology into the UK, one of the founding figures of Pax Christi, which was the Christian nuclear disarmament movement. So it's about as polar opposite <laughs> my dad as you could possibly get. And I know David Randall and my dad, they never liked each other. Like <laughs> they were not, this is not a kind of friendship, you know. Mm. But often for several years, uh, David on a Thursday would be around our dinner table. They would pray together, eat together and then do work together. And there was a sense in which really you can have profound theological, political, ideological differences but I know that both David Randall respected my father, my father respected David Randall, because they were both deeply committed to the community where they lived and wanted to see practically the the kind of benefit of that community to the you know work to to the benefit of that community and its and its flourishing. And so that sense of you can have all these differences, but you can come together around shared work and and build a common life for the flourishing of everyone in that place amongst these people in this place. And that's really what defines politics as a kind of small P way. Mm -hmm. That was a, a I kind of hadn't really realized quite how steeped in that. That was just in my bones, as it were. And so subsequently, I was working in places like Eastern Europe and saw there the kind of lack in the kind of wake of the uh, fall of communism and the kind of rebuilding of communist societies. And then lastly, getting involved in things like community organizing as a form of kind of radical democratic politics at a more street level. It's always that flavor uh, of politics that I think rings true to me and feels authentic and feels very different, almost, almost seems utopian uh, when I think about something like my father's relationship to Father David Randall, but actually was just an ordinary part of family life. The further I get away from it, the more extraordinary it seems mm, in, in the light. Yeah. But that was just what they, just kind of what you did. They weren't didn't think of it as particularly special or extraordinary. I was just kind of, you just got on with it. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And I, you were kind of getting to it um, towards the end of that, but it makes me think about so much of how I have become, you know, used to talking about this is actually by quoting you. I feel like I show up to places all the time. And one of the first things I say is we have to have a conversation about what we mean by political. Right. And I'll never forget before I came to Duke, reading one of your most recent books, Christ in the Common Life, and hearing this line from the book, that politics is about the forming, norming, and sustaining of a common life together, especially between those who are similar and those who are different. And that was so helpful for me in having language for what I had already started talking a little bit about, which is I want to have a broader understanding of what we're talking about, especially for 
Christians in the church who might think there's some role for the church in political life, but when they hear political life, they think a pastor gets up um, you know, and preaches a sermon about who to vote for or what policies to support and are suspicious of that. And, and that's a whole kind of question that a lot of people will come to me with. But it was helpful to first start with, okay, what's a broader understanding of this word that we're using? Can you talk to us a little bit about that broader definition of politics, especially as it relates to what you were just saying of like, what is counted in our political life or what is seen as political work, it might be different than the kind of definitions that we typically think of. Yeah, I think, I mean, when most people hear the word politics, they think of kind of party politics. They think of rage tweets and kind of backroom <laughs> deals and, you know, the, the kind of world that just we find exhausting and demeaning and turns us off. But when we really strip it back, and a kind of key feature of my own work has been trying to recover politics really as a moral uh, enterprise um, that is central to how we understand ourselves as human, how we understand what it means to love God, what it means to love a neighbour. And this, I think, both draws on classical roots of understandings of politics. We think of someone like Aristotle, but also I think it's there at the heart of the New Testament and prior to that in Hebrew Scriptures, Old, Old Testament. We've only really got four choices of what to do when we meet someone we dislike, we find difficult, we might find their life scandalous or shocking. We just might find them deeply annoying. We're going to encounter people who are different to us. And at that point, we have, we have four choices. We can either kill them, we can either create a system where we can dominate them or coerce them into doing what we want without having to have a relationship with them or listen to them or take them seriously, or we can persecute them. We can make life so difficult for them that they flee, they run away. Uh, now, obviously, contemporary context, whether it's persecution in lots of different places, whether it's just people killing each other in, in civil wars, we see that all over the place. Uh, and the church has a terrible history of engaging all, all three of those options. The fourth option is to do politics, forming some kind of common life amid recognising there are different kinds of power different kinds of agency in play, different and often competing and, and often conflicting visions of the good. But if I am to survive, let alone thrive, I need others to live. And so I've got to have some kind of common life with them. And this is where Aristotle's very succinct formulation that to be human is to be a political animal. We cannot survive, let alone thrive without others. And therefore, to be human, to literally have any sense of how I come to be in the world and, and survive and then flourish, I've got to form a common life with people. That means you've got to form a common life with people you're probably not going to like, who are going to wind you up, who might find scandalous and very difficult in all sorts of ways. And you will definitely disagree with about something. And at that point, are you going to do politics or are you going to do one of the other options? So I think, you know, we, we, we can be allergic to the world of party politics, the world of MSNBC and Fox News and all of that world. But we kind of got to tune that out and say, you cannot be human without sign of common life. And the word we have for building a common life with others is politics. So there is no getting away from politics. You either engaging it constructively or destructively, but you don't get to survive, let alone flourish without doing some kind of politics. Early in your answer to this, you said something about, you know, the difficulty that prompts us to go to politics is this competing vision of good, what the good life is like, what a human creature is, what communities should look like. And what I hear a lot of people say, especially a lot of Christians these days who have inherited really poor models of expressing Christian convictions in public life is maybe it's just not worth trying to do it. Like maybe we just should stop especially when it comes to scripture. But I think underneath that is also an assumption that they have accepted, that they have heard from others, that they've kind of just grown up sort of absorbing, that the best way to have a productive conversation with people who are different from one another is to kind of screen out some of those really significant differences. And so I hear people say, this is the way they phrase the question all the time, is like in a pluralistic world or in a pluralistic country, how can I possibly express Christian convictions in public life? And they tend to have kind of specific ideas of what that looks like, that if we can work through, we can kind of say, well, that's actually different than some of these other models, even in American history, where it's been done really faithfully. But how would you kind of answer that person? I feel like this is typically when I hear this question, it's a college student. It's often a right. young Christian who grew up in an evangelical church. 
And I understand why they've received such bad models and might not want to follow them. But I also want to challenge a little bit this assumption that we create a better common life together if we leave some of our most deeply held convictions at the door. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I understand the the kind of wounded place out of which that either just exhaustion with it or it, it seems impossible to do. And it does take, I think it is a... It's a spiritual, theological, and moral and political struggle to do it well. So it needs mm. kind of prefacing to say that. But Paul there is drawing on the kind of classical image of the body politic. So there is no body without each contributing their part. And we, I think, have inherited very bad, I would say, and I caution, caution kind of liberal ideas of we're all the same, or we all have to be equal, i.e., the same as each other. None of our intuitive and actual experience teaches us that, whether it's in your own family or, you know, in your neighborhood or at school or university, you're always be meeting people who are very different to you and who are something of a mystery to you. And so you, actually to, but I can't really discover who I am outside of relationship with people who are different to me. If everyone's the same, I don't learn anything about myself um, we generally call that a cult. Uh, that's like, <laughs> yeah. and even then, it's a false—it's a false difference. Yeah. You know, we have rich stories, about Tower of Babel, in contrast to something like the, the story of Pentecost, where it's about difference in relation, and, and mm. we can look to a kind of at a meta-cosmic level, think about the Trinity as persons who are different coming into relation, and so it's the ultimate reality is about communion. That's about difference in relation. So it's not we're absolutely different as certain kind of postmodern ideas, there's an irreducible gulf between us, nor a certain kind of liberal anthropologies, we're all the same. No, we are different. And then the question is the quality and character of the relationships between us is how both I discover who I am as a human and we come to be uh, as humans together. And so when we're thinking about politics, it's about attending to the quality and character of our relationships with others, which forms the common life through which we survive and thrive. It's not that one has to beat people over the head with the Bible, but one actually does have to have honest speech about one's cherished commitments and invite, similarly, others to honour their own cherished commitments. And at that point of difference, we can discover who we are and both the difference and the relatedness. And now, I think to tell one story that illustrates this, I, I was involved here in London uh, a number of years ago, it was the time of the last financial crisis, 2007, 2008. And I was doing a lot of work with Jewish uh, leaders and Muslim leaders from local mosques and synagogue. Um, and pe people were really struggling with debt and particularly heavy interest personal loans, uh, whether it's um, kind of mortgages or in personal debt on credit cards and things like that. And, and a lot of them payday loans and this kind of stuff. And my Jewish and Christian colleagues in, involved in this, they had a name for this. They called it usury. Mm. I'd never thought about usury. <laughs> and now in that context, I had to have my walls down. I had to be in relationship with people who were very, very different to me. They weren't Christian. They they like would balk at certain ideas I had about who God was and what life was about. And I balked at them. Like, you know, there was fundamental difference in play. But I was in relationship. At the same time, being in relationship with them forced me to ask very serious questions about scripture, about my own tradition. So I had to put my roots down. And so it's both walls down, roots mm. down, and at that point, bridges can be built. Mm. What often happens, though, is the reverse of that. We either, in the name of defending Christianity, put our walls up, and the irony there is we often pull our roots up at the same time and have a very shallow understanding and a very brittle, defensive understanding of Christianity and make it about ideological chalk talking points, or in the name of being open, one of my least favourite words, inclusive, uh, we we put our walls down and at the same time pull our roots up and, and actually think we have to dilute, diminish, somehow dissemble about our Christian belief and practice. So it's about really at the kind of heart of this is how do you both bring your walls down to be in relationship with people who are different to you and thereby discover who you are in relation with them? 
But at that point, put your roots down and do the hard work of interrogating, investigating one's most cherished commitments because those others are raising questions about what you believe and practice. And that's then a stimulus to be more faithful, more loving, more hopeful. And at that point, we can see bridges being built and we find points of both connection and difference. And that then in the kind of building a common life, we can have this dance of conflict and conciliation. But I can't know beforehand, outside a relationship, whether what I'm going to agree with, what I'm going to disagree with, mm. what in my own tradition is a, is a gift to bring out and what in my own tradition is something that actually I need to, is a bone that's buried deep in the earth that needs unearthing and going, that's pretty bad. We need to repent of that. But you can only do that in the context of difference in relation kinds of uh, situations. Do you ever feel as though life is nothing but chaos and complication, and you just wish for some kind of system or structure to help you reorient your days and weeks? The answer might come by reshaping simple habits in a way that leads to a life of flourishing. In The Common Rule, Justin Whitmell Early shares about the four daily and four weekly habits that helped him emerge from a time of deep anxiety to one of purpose and meaning. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to find out how you can get a 25% discount on The Common Rule at ivpress.com. That's such a helpful example, and I want to make sure that people understand it. So can you explain to us what usury means? <laughs> because I think a lot of people are probably unfamiliar with that, but it's such a good example of deeply Christian idea that comes to us from the Christian tradition that I hope can be a gift to our public conversations. But one, we a lot of us don't know enough about that tradition, but also we might be nervous about you know sharing it publicly. But explain that to us, because I think that's important. Yeah, so so use it again, long, long uh, to my shame, you know, I'd written on economic political issues for many, many years and and the kind of you know, taught history of Christian political thought. I'd never thought about how debt and this technical term usury, but it's it's absolutely central to scripture. There are so many of the Deuteronomic and Levitical laws about it. In fact, you can they themselves are partly in response to one of the oldest legal codes we have, the laws of Hammurumbi from kind of five thousand BC, but 25% of that is taken up with anti-usury measures. And usury really is just, strictly speaking, it's the charging of any interest on a loan, whether that's a financial loan, giving someone a sheep, uh, your coat. And so we can see running then through the New Testament as well, there's a kind of theme, think about Jesus saying, if, if someone takes your coat, give them, takes them your and give me your coat. And the jubilee in, in Luke 4, the jubilee is, is the declaration of the end of usurious relations. And so there, it gets taken up in the patristic writers. It's in the Council of Nicaea. There's a prohibition against usury. So it's, it's a creedal. That's how important it was to the church. It was a creedal matter. Now, there's a shift in our contemporary use of the term tends to be referencing, think about things like payday loans, uh, tends to be referencing excessive charging of interest rather than the simple charge of interest. And that, that kind of shift in Christian thinking emerges in the kind of from the 12th century on, um, all sorts of kind of interesting, fascinating reasons that we're mm -hmm. going to hear. But it's, it's, there's a recognition that there are kind of other, there are interest-like things that are legitimate and not immoral. But this fundamental commitment that there has to be a limit to debt. And if there isn't, uh, debt is rather like you're digging a hole and uh, to find water and the sides of the, of the hole collapse in on you. Like the very means you're trying to pay for a bus ride, pay for your house, buy food becomes the means through which you're dominated and your whole life is taken away from you. And there's a strong argument to say that actually the what the um, Israelites are liberated from. They're not chattel slaves. They're not uh, other kinds of slaves. They're actually debt slaves. And what we see at the end of Genesis is a creation essentially of a debt slave structure. And that's what God liberates from. And that's why when we think about atonement and so salvation images, notions of redemption, these are all mainly focused around liberation or deliverance from debt. So debt isn't 
a kind of an interesting on a laundry list of laundry list of issues. It's central to how we understand divine human relationships, and I, I would never have thought about that if I hadn't had strangers who challenged me to think harder about what I thought about and what what was going on around me. And so, listening to the cries of the poor to hear ah, there's something really bad going on, and listening to the voices of strangers. And it points to a bigger thing. Can we be faithful alone? Do we need others not like us? But at, at that very point, if we are simply not talking and haven't done the work where we can th talk with others about our deepest commitments as Christians, they're going to be denied gifts and we're not going to have this gift exchange through which a common life is, is built. So I think that a kind of false humility which denies you've got a gift to bring uh, or a kind of overly defensiveness, which refuses the kind of conversation. But I think crucial there is also the sense of, and it was embodied in a relationship around kind of the kind of usury story, is uh, it, one doesn't claim to control the space. I can be a guest and a host. I'm not, we're trying to find together not neutral ground, N-E-U-T-R-A-L, which is the kind of liberal idea, but mutual ground where each has a gift to bring. And so I don't claim to control the space, but I have a legitimate voice and standing to contribute to the space as we build together this mutual space where we could discover what it means to be human together. That's so helpful, especially that last Bit, I think it kind of addresses another part of this question that I hear a lot from, especially, like I said, younger Christians in America who their only concept of Christian convictions in public life is, you know, an example they don't want to model. And they've gotten new language recently of Christian nationalism. And so they kind of think, OK, I'm worried now that I will either legitimately be Christian nationalist. And I don't want to be that or that I'll be labeled that way. And I'm trying to discern, like, what does that mean and maybe the best way to respond to what I'm seeing as real injustices and real excesses. I see the January 6th insurrection and the Christian signs associated with that. And I go, okay, I have to do whatever is necessary to be as far away as possible from that. Yeah. I appreciate this last part of, of your answer of just like, what does it look like to seek mutuality, um, not dominance in our public space? But could you speak a little bit to that concern, especially because I think it's not just a question in the abstract of how we define this, which is a lot of the conversation that's happened recently of let's let me let's make sure we're appropriately defining Christian nationalism. It's also, I think, more deeply people wondering, is it possible for me to engage in public life in a way that either initially or over time, as I'm shaped and formed by my participation in it, doesn't lead me to seek or exert dominance over other people right. in the name of Christ? You know, it's worth saying that Christians have a very bad history of this, but that's not the only history. And I think some of the kind of stories within which talk of Christian nationalism, um, you know, people talk about Christian supremacy, and they, I, I just these are kind of silly. Um, they're not very helpful. They're not historically grounded. One of the things I think we need to guard against in reaction to a Christian nationalism, um, for want of a better term, is a kind of self-righteous vanguardism. It's like, we know better. I've suddenly read three books on Christian nationalism. I know yeah. now I'm going to tell all yeah. my uncles and aunts how they should live their life. And there's a kind of equal and opposite, equal and opposite zealotry. Um, so let's let's not be zealots <laughs> and kind of be listeners. But that doesn't mean to say then we're mute and we can't mm -hmm. say anything. Yeah. Uh, so that there's there's a, there's a host of bad roads to travel down and bad stories to tell. But st telling us a sober story of grace and disgrace of crucifixion and resurrection. That's the Easter story. That's the story we've got to tell. It's you have to confront full on the tragedies of the history of the church. And if you're going to tell a true story, that includes telling the story of the joys and the wonder, as well as the woundedness. And so I think bringing that sensibility is crucial as a kind of preface to, to this conversation. Often we just tell one, only the bad side or only the good side, and that's not a true story. The other thing to say is it really goes back to how we understand what the foundation of a political community is, whether that's our town or whether that's a nation state like America, North America, United States of America or United Kingdom or whatever it is. And 
again, this is a perennial problem. It's been a particular problem in the modern period as people try and find ways of grounding the nation state and the role of Christianity in that. And we have various versions of what might call the kind of family faith and flag story, that there's a way of grounding this the the basis of this political community either in a story of shared blood or family we're all of the same ancestry um and that often is a highly racialized story um white supremacist story um or we ground it in uh, land and flag and territory and soil and again we can think of the 1920s and 30s or we can think of contemporary debates or going back into the 19th century um very bad versions of this, but is it an attempt to find a space outside of politics and its cut and thrust and the endless negotiation of a common life on which you can say, yes, here's here's a stable basis, or you do it on faith, which is we've all got to be Christian, Yeah. Um, anyone who's not a Christian, and that's really the basis, that's the foundation, that's a kind of metaphysical anchor which stabilises this political community. The problem with family, faith and flag as stories to tell about the basis and origin and ground of a political community is that each one of those carries with them an intrinsic exclusion. Those who are not of our faith, that could be Islam or Christianity or whatever, but it's always an inherently exclusionary story. It's not about mutual ground. And so when people are trying to ground or, or reaching for a family faith from flag story about the basis of a political community, you know something's wrong. That's a very thin and brittle kind of ground to base it on and they're giving up on the hard work of and the and the difficult tension-filled dance of conflict and conciliation involved in crafting over time with these slightly annoying other people who seem to constantly disagree with you a political life um, and i think feeding into the american stories is this republican tradition of the the importance of all politics is based on a political community and there's a particular Christian story to tell about that and, and very rich in particularly Protestant history of it's a, and this goes back, there goes back to the Old Testament of the notion of the covenant. Covenant precedes command, precedes law. Covenant is the basis and the renewal of the people comes through return to covenantal faithfulness. And so that's, that's been a rich seam mm -hmm. in Christian thinking about the basis of political community, which the idolatries of family, faith and flag is a failure of a scriptural imagination. It's a failure of a political imagination. And it's a turn to try and secure yourself in the world by something other than love of neighbour. And we know that goes A, very wrong. It's also profoundly unfaithful. Um, and so when people think they're being Christian because they're, they're trying to have a kind of Christianized version of family, faith and flag to defend the integrity of this political community, I'm like, red flag, red flag. <laughs> <laughs> you're not reading scripture, clearly, yeah, yeah. and you've totally forgotten the Christian tradition and you're being profoundly unfaithful because you're making an idol of that which should never be the ground of any kind of community, let alone a political community. That is a good segue into what I wanted to ask next, because both this emphasis on the stories that we tell and kind of the trajectory of the stories that we tell, I think, is really important. And also our ability to to rightly read and interpret scripture. And um, I told you earlier, I've been having all these conversations promoting this book I wrote about scripture in American political history. Very and I book. just I <laughs> thank you. Um, I just feel like you would have such a field day with one of the questions I get asked all the time by people who are reading the book and responding to it and, and engaging with it, which I love. But one of the questions they ask a lot of the time is they'll look at the history and they'll especially look, you know, at great abuses of scripture, oftentimes when it comes to racial injustice in our history, which is, you know, one of the preeminent examples of just great abuse of scripture. And they'll look at that and then they'll think about contemporary questions. And the way they'll phrase the question often is, how can we make sure today that we don't end up on the wrong side of history? Right. And I don't you know, usually want to like get into it with them because I know what they're trying to ask. They're trying to ask, how do we not make the same mistakes? How do we not be so shaped and formed by the sins and biases of the time we're in that we can't rightly hear the word of the Lord? 
But I also think for you, this is like a really important question. As you were just saying, how we narrate the good and the bad and what kind of direction we're going in plays a significant role in how we think about our political lives, especially as Christians. And we've had really different ways of thinking about that throughout history. So can you talk about why that phrasing makes you upset? <laughs> because I think it's a really important point for people to hear. Yeah. Now, see, this is one of my kind of pet, pet kind of <laughs> beefs I get on. You know, people talk about being on the wrong side of history. Or they're on the wrong side of history. Or we're on the right side of history. And it's, it's tied into an absolutely egregiously terrible philosophy of history, which I thought would died out about 20 years ago and he's <laughs> back with a vengeance and you're like oh my lord really we're having this conversation again but it's this idea that and, and we can think about it just in terms of philosophically going back to hegel it's it's there in marx um uh, but it, it has a prehistory as well there's certain kind of ancient philosophies which we find uh, this kind of frame of reference but kind of history is moving in one direction. There is a strong sense that the kind of unfold in, he in Hegelian terms, the unfolding of the spirit of freedom comes through history. And so in Hegel's terms, and it's again, you can look at it in Marx's terms and others, if you're kind of at a particular stage in history, you're uh, actually both freer, more rational, um, you contain the true being. Um, now, for Hegel, this was the idea that the kind of northern, it was northern, not southern, northern European man was the true subject of history. If you really wanted to know the content of rationality and freedom and the true humanness, then you need to kind of go and talk to a Frenchman or an Englishman about kind of 1850. Their consciousness embodied the true consciousness of what it meant to be human. And that was a historically evolving process. Now, Marx inverts that, and so it's the proletariat. Uh, so it's the working class who become the bearers. They're the subject of history. They're the engine of history. If you want to know what it means to be truly human, truly free, truly rational, uh, truly in sync with the kind of metaphysical structure of things, then you've got to be aligned with the proletariat. Of course, anyone who's not those things, in Hegel's version, is a highly racialized story. Africa literally has no history. It's outside of history for Hegel. Uh, or Marx, if you're middle class. Uh, bourgeois, you have no being. You're on the wrong side of history, you, or you have no history. So it's not simply you, we have a political disagreement or even an ideological disagreement. It's it's a fundamentally metaphysical claim. You're the wrong kind of being if you're on the wrong side of history. And we know what we do, as we see tragically and horrifically in the 20th century, what we do with people who have the wrong kind of being. Uh, whether they're the bourgeois, whether they're Jews, whether it's African-Americans, we, we put them in gulags, we put them in death camps, we put them in, they shouldn't exist in the world. So when people make a claim about they're on the wrong side of history, I get very, very, very worried because that's a very, in the history of the 20th century, that's a short step from genocide and from kind of exterminating those who have the wrong, who seem to have the wrong kind of being. And I think there's a lot of loose talk around this without owning the extremely horrific history that travels along with that phrase. Um, so there's a lot at stake in it. And in contrast, I think a Christian view, there is only one subject of history, Jesus Christ, mm. um, good the Venerable Bede, good English saint, uh, <laughs> even kind of created the ADBC uh, system to kind of mark that as a way of symbolically marking at Christ's the turning point of history. The only, if we really want to know what it means to be human, we look to Christ, uh, who is the restoration of the image of God in human in the incarnation. If you want to have the true being, you have to participate in Christ. Um, and so there's a kind of a Christological humanism, uh, which was really kind of brought to the fore in the 20s and 30s by people like Jacques Maritain, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Karl Barth, Simon Weil, others, I would argue, trying to, in, in opposition to both fascism and communism and this kind of wrong side, right side of history thinking. And part of that is saying, if Christ is made present to every period of history through the Holy Spirit, we're, we're neither in either a declension narrative, which again, we have a kind of, in a certain defensive 
uh, Christian nationalist story. Mm -hmm. uh, the world is going to hell in a handcart. We can mm -hmm. think of the kind of Benedict optionism. We've got to kind of circle the wagons and defend true rationality, yeah. true freedom, you know, whatever against the barbarian hordes. Or we've got to take over the country, a kind of Trumpian Christian nationalism. We've got to take over the country and restore it to its former glory uh, and therefore restore the human and, and, and hold. So that's a kind of declension narrative which warrants certain kinds of dominatory projects. Or we have an ascension narrative. So we've got a, we're moving ever onward and upward. We're progressing forward. And we've got to leave behind the past is just a terrible ground. It's heteropatriarchal, white supremacist horror. Everything of the past is bad. We've got to leave it behind. And so I, I, I'm always trying to work with students to kind of get rid of those kinds of stories that are just tacitly operating in their heads of which the kind of wrong side, right side of history is one version of that. And say actually a Christian understanding of history is it's good and bad. It's a story of grace and disgrace. If you think about baptism and, and, and conversion as a model of how we are historical creatures, we're always, there's a story of recovering a self that's been lost through sin and mm. idolatry, our created self, and coming into a self that's born again through a gift of the spirit and, and this kind of eschatological anticipation of the world to come. And so we're always caught betwixt and between, mm. and we're always having to make judgments about what needs recovering that's been lost uh, through sin and idolatry and being honest about that, and what is new uh, and needs a completely surprising and, and very different way of doing things, uh, given the circumstances we're in or the challenges we face. The Anglican poet and theologian Samuel Taylor Coleridge has a lovely line about, he's thinking about church-state relations, and he's in, his, in writing in the 18th century and post-French Revolution, and he says a humane culture is always a dance between permanence and progression, the tending of our inherited customs and traditions and practices and the need to adapt and change. And this I would say is, is kind of deep, actually biologically built in where everything stays the same, we die, uh, and kind of, uh, but if everything's always changing, we die. So it's always this interplay between a, a kind of the need to adapt and change and the need to till and tend what we've inherited from ages past. And I think that's true culturally and socially, politically as well. So the capacity of Christians to have a different kind of historical consciousness, a different kind of historical imagination, where we're not either telling a declension or ascension narrative, but understanding and looking around us and saying, what here needs recovering and tending? And so we can pass on to generations to come. Um, that might be a wood or a forest, or that might be a customary practice, a children's song or a lovely hymn or whatever it is, uh, and what needs adapting, changing, radically reconfiguring. And that's just a constant process of judgment and you can't settle. And, and again, I think this is one of the, goes back to what I was saying about the basis of political community is in the quality and character of political relationships, not in family, faith and flag. We're all the time in our temptations as humans and particularly as Christians, is want to resolve the tension. So if I can say, oh, I can tell an ascension narrative where I've got the right ideological checklist and that sorts me out and I can just measure people against that ideological checklist and determine whether they're on the right side or wrong side of history, that stops me having to make do the difficult work of listening, making careful judgments, sifting, weighing things up, prudentially kind of coming to judgment. Um, because that is quite hard work, but I think that's the deeply human labor, that's the deeply spiritual labor that actually forms us as richer, more humane, uh, more Christ-like humans. I want to make sure before um, we end this conversation that we have at least one kind of practical thing for people, because we've had so many great ideas, but I can imagine someone... Um, thinking about all of this and going, okay, I'm going to spend some time, hopefully, reading scripture, trying to sort out some of these ideas. Um, and one thing that we're asking everyone on the podcast this season reading is- Reading my new book, be helpful, very- There you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. We will link that. Um, but just like as someone is approaching what will be a really contentious election season, they're imagining difficult relationships, maybe church difficulties in their family, in their school. What would you say would be- like a good Christian practice to adopt or a relationship to build or something for someone to do 
to prepare for an election season that isn't just the things that they might already know to do. Like I should do some research on some candidates and I should show up to a meeting in my community and I should. But what might be distinctly a Christian response to prepare for what will be really challenging for a lot of people? Mm. Politics isn't fundamentally about ideas. Um, and that's part of our problem. It's become reduced to a series of ideological checklists rather than about relating in practice to these people in this place at this time. And so I think there are kind of three things I would say is don't talk about the national agenda. Politics should first and foremost, I think, on a Christian understanding, be local. So what is what's going on in your neighborhood? That should be the beginning point of any conversation. It's about these people in this place at this time. Um, so attend to the local and try and understand what's going on in your locality and then read what's happening nationally from the bottom up, from your proximate relations, from your neighborhood relations up. What we tend to do is we tend to read from the top down. And so we take our cue for how to make sense of what's going on around us from our national news feed uh, or from the kind of debating, mm -hmm. national debating points. And the world looks very, dis that's an inherently distorting mirror. So the first thing is just a kind of spiritual discipline attend to your locality and then think about the national story in the light of the local. So that keeps it grounded, it keeps it human. It's about the people you actually live with. The other two is, one is, is I think a basic Christian practice is listening. So don't presume you know, don't be triggered by certain words, ask a question, listen, get and get people to tell their story. Often we where I oh, sometimes use the story of uh, my cat Marvin is a very good listener, um, <laughs> uh, but he crouches down the poor little um, kind of squirrels and things in a garden. You know, he's he's listening very attentively, but he's but it's on that moment when he can pounce, and that's often how we have political conversations. We're listening very attentively, but we're listening for ah oh, point three B two A on their ideological yes. checklist. Ah, I've got my answer, my debate. Mm -hmm. So that's not listening. That's that's a kind of that's what predators do. Um, actual listening is well. Why do you think that? What what is that's an interesting. Can you tell me a story where that matters to you? But equally, in that point, we're inviting people to show up for us as humans. So on the one hand, in listening, I say you matter. You've got a story. You're somebody worth listening to. Uh, and I think that's a profoundly Christian claim. And that again is a spiritual discipline. Um, you can feel all your hackles rising. You could, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when Uncle Joe at the Thanksgiving table comes yeah. out yet again with that awful story about, and you just, you don't, you know, there's the patience, the virtue to say, tell me, Uncle Joe, is that, tell me a bit more about that. Why, why is that important to you? Um, and then the last one I'll say is related to that is stories. Don't begin with your five debating points rooted in a story. And again, it's this. I think one of our big problems at the moment is this endless move to a kind of abstraction where it ends up either as a national debating point or an ideological. We're debating at some ideological that neither of us really understand um, and are trying to grope for and feeling defensive rather than an exchange of stories. A wonderful Alistair McIntyre says, you know, we're storytelling animals. We can't make sense of who we are outside of a story. We, we tell about who we are in relation to God and in relation to each other and in relation to this place. And so... What story do you tell about yourself? What story, and I invite people, when Uncle Joe makes that comment, say, well, what story do you want to tell about this town? What story do you want to tell about America? What, what story do you think is told about our church, whether it's some Baptist or the Episcopalians or whatever? And I could just give one illustration of this. I remember <laughs> to work with some colleagues at Duke, and they were very concerned about kind of Christian, particularly evangelical responses to climate change in, in, in the Southeast, which is going to be very adversely affected. And so they were going into kind of churches and putting up data charts and this kind of stuff. This is the, this is the awful technocratic approach. You think you can kind of data, data bludgeon people into agreeing with you. Um, awful, inhumane way of proceeding. And so that's what they were doing. They were coming up all these charts and then they were getting a very negative reaction. And they, they made me have this conversation and they said, why do you think that's? Because basically you just told them they're a bunch of idiots and their way of life is rubbish. Like, no wonder they're going to tell you to get lost. Mm -hmm. Who wants to hear that? That's a horrible thing to be told. You don't think you're telling them, but that's exactly what you're telling them. Why didn't you begin with a story? Why don't you say, and a lot of the folk around here love hunting and fishing, tell them a story about where they go fishing or where they go hunting. 
and and the the story of the wood or the pond or lake and what and then then have a conversation about what would it take for that lake or that wood uh to for their children and their children's children to be enjoy and love what they love and cherish about that place that's a very different place to have the begin the conversation um it's not threatening it's an invitation often we begin at a point of conflict and what we are angry about I think always begin at the point of what people love uh, mm. and what people cherish and what people honoured. Because actually what people really drives people to get upset is the sense of what they cherish and love is being desecrated or demeaned or disdained. And so if you can get people to say, what do you want honoured? Oh, okay, that's what you want honoured. That's what you really matters to you. Then we can have a conversation about that. We can have a conversation about, well, this is how I think that can be honoured. And this is a story that I have about what I want honoured. And then we're we're at the place of love. And again, it's not going back to what we're talking about, the kind of, you know, tolerance story, the bland inclusivity story. It's about finding the point of greatest difference. And often, you know, disagreement is mostly just confusion. It's what are the real disagreements. And you only get to that when you work out what you really want honoured, what you really mm -hmm. hold sacred. And we only get to that, I would say, through the stories of our experience. And often what we discover is people we profoundly disagree with ideologically show us love and respect. People we often agree with ideologically on 99% of the issues treat us abominably. And so is it really about the question of virtue or the question of ideology? And if it's about virtue and about the, the human person and the quality and character of relations between us through which we come to be, then that actually has to be at the centre of it, not whether I agree or disagree with them about their tax differential views. That's so helpful. I hope that that is encouraging to people to hear just a vision of what this could be, but also some practical responses to it. Dr. Brotherton, thank you so much for this. Thank you for opening up our conversations for other people to hear um, and for just bringing your wisdom to bear on the questions people are really asking. So thank you. Always a joy to be with you, Kaylin. The Disruptors is a production of InterVarsity Press. For more information on any IVP titles mentioned on this episode, visit ivpress.com and use code IVPOD25. That's IVPOD25 for 25% off. Sound engineering by Honest Podcasts. Our producers are Andrew Bronson, Myla Kim, Helen Lee, and Travis Albritton. Our production assistant is Isis Toldson, and I'm your host, Caitlin Schess. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the IVP YouTube channel, and leave a rating and review to support the podcast. Yeah.